0: Hey Mo, welcome to the show. Well, Jeremy, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this. Well, it's been nice to hang out with you ever since our times on Coffin Fellows Venture Deals and Brett Felt's teachings. So good to see you.
1: Yeah, that's actually quite a great course. Great course. So again, really happy to be on the podcast. We to a couple of your different episodes and they've been
0: great. So anyone that's listening in, should definitely go back and look at some of the last ones. Well, I'm also excited because you are on the show and you have such an interesting journey, obviously. As a founder, who's on the second startup, also your change of geography from Europe to America to now Southeast Asia. So I think it would be an interesting journey for anybody who's thinking about it. Watching you build out in the enterprise automation space is going to be a good conversation topic for everybody as well.
1: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to going a bit into that. And, you know, we'll we'll touch on this later on the call. It's interesting, especially when you have built teams in Europe, the U.S. and Asia. There's a lot of learnings that I think are non-obvious.
0: Awesome. So for those who don't know you yet, the way I do uh, after six months hanging out, how would you introduce yourself professionally?
1: I run a company called Metapair. It specializes in the enterprise automation space particularly in business-to-business collaboration. So every organization in the world works with other businesses. Uh, a lot of that work is manual, and we use automation, RPA, AI to kind of make that process a bit easier. So that's what I do now. In addition to that, I am also a guest lecturer at Monash University. So I sometimes pop down there to give lectures on enterprise AI and application AI to their aspiring students and recent graduates. Prior to running this startup, I ran another startup based in the U.S., focused on partnerships as well, but it was a bit more of a tech-enabled agency. Prior to being in the world of startups, I worked for many years in um, technology at Goldman Sachs, where I built automated trading platforms and the hedge fund world. So if anyone's worked at a fund building their technology infrastructure over there, skin the company.
0: Awesome. And how did you make that transition into the technology world?
1: Originally, I'm going to go back here a bit. I don't want to sound like an old man. I am in my mid-30s. I'm going to go back to London. So I was born and bred in London. And as a kid, it's maybe a, a bit different to other people. My, my dad actually didn't really like us watching TV. He was like, TV is just like a waste of time. And, and the reason why is as a first-generation immigrant, he had to work hard. Like He came from a very hard life. He was the youngest son out of 11 siblings. So for him, it was like entertainment is probably a waste of time to just keep working. So we didn't have TV, but what we did have was a computer. So I remember my father coming back one day, this was in, in the 90s, and he brought a computer. It you know, saved a lot of money to do it, And he said to me, I really don't know what this is going to do for us, but I know it's important. <laughs> I know things are going to change, but I don't know what it is. So he's put, put a lot of money, he brought a computer over there. And that led me into... It's actually quite a formative area of my life because it led me into building software. Because we couldn't really watch much TV as a kid, and we spent most of our time learning. So what would happen is that we spend most of the day studying mathematics, studying science, STEM subjects. And if you uh, I know this might be familiar for a lot of people from maybe Asian families, that's basically something you do, you end up studying a lot of science. The computer was like a form of entertainment, a form of creativity. So one of the first things I did was, we used to have a game, this was like the first Age of Empires, uh, this may be a long time ago. But the first Age of so if you like strategy games, Age of Empires is a game where you kind of take over other territories and you fight other kingdoms. <laughs> and uh, I used to constantly get thrashed by my brothers, consistently, and I just couldn't take it. And what you could do is you could actually hack, or when I say hack, you could basically modify hex files to like increase the mu- amount of gold that you have. <laughs> So for me, it was a very strong incentive to stop being beaten in this game. I started to play around with hex files and writing scripts. And that's how I started to get into technology. That's how it first started. And then, interestingly enough, when I started doing
0: that, that had a positive
1: effect on my brothers, my siblings.
0: Wow. I love that story. And I do remember the first Age of Empires. <laughs> And I had no idea till today that you could modify the (laughs) hex files to get that happening. That's awesome. Yeah,
1: yeah. That was the entry point, but that was just the beginning of a much larger story. So around that time, internet had come to the UK. So this was like late, late 90s. And AOL was the first internet provider. I don't know if a lot of people know this, but what they would do is, if you're in the supermarket, they would give away AOL CDs to connect to the internet. So my dad, one day, who's like at Tesco's, the Tesco's is a large supermarket in the UK and they basically gave him like this AOL CD. (laughs) He brought it home and he put it in and he he installed the internet. He installed the internet. When that happened, that basically opened up the doorway to the rest of the world. Because if you think about, at least my life at that time was basically at home or at school and I had no real knowledge of the rest of the world. And this was a glimpse into places like Japan, Korea, um, the US. It was great. It It basically blew my mind. And uh, for us, that that basically was, I think, the gateway drug. From there, it's been an addiction. My first company, I wouldn't really call it a company because we didn't incorporate it technically as a company, but I was 15 years old. My brother, younger brother, was 11. And what we did is we used to love reading, not Japanese comics. So A lot of people read manga. So manga is like Japanese comics. You know, we're in Asia, everyone knows this. But we used to read... <laughs> Korean comics, Manhua, maybe I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. But the issue is, we don't read Korean. Like, I, I can't read the Korean language. <laughs> so, what happened is, we basically get together a bunch of other geeks like ourselves, like online, we do this over IRC. Would say, oh, look, there's a there's this new chapter of Change Guy coming out, and that, that was the new of one of that won the comics. Or King of Bowling, like this is another one. It's like, hey, could someone translate it? And then it turns out that we weren't the only ones. Other people wanted the same thing. And that formed a small community online. Like, hey, let's, let's translate and distribute these comics. Um, and we realized that we were doing this basically every week, we'd do it several times a week. So we're like, hey, let's let's like productionize this a bit. Why don't we be a bit smarter? So we fired up an IRC server. We started building community and we're like, oh, you know what, sometimes the translator's not there, so we need someone to like take his place. So we then started recruiting a bunch of different translators. And my, my young brother was amazing at this. He was great at recruiting. And then we were like, oh, but hold on a second. Where do we host all these different files? So then we started to basically call up different service providers where we could host this content. We put together a forum and we, and we basically put to the entire community to basically take these Korean mangas, translate them, and then we created a website where we could distribute them. So if you think about it, it was almost like Crunchyroll for... Not manga, but for Korean comics. And we went from essentially zero subscribes or zero downloads a month to in four months, a million a month, a million downloads. Think of that. And this, uh, by the way, <laughs> this was, I think, 2001. So we're talking 20 years ago. So this is a big thing. And um, that was the first taste of like hyper growth and felt amazing. But then that all came to an abrupt end because one, of, one day my dad came to the room and he was like, what's this massive like, bill? It's essentially a server bill. And then try explaining to your dad (laughs) what Korean mangas are, what servers are. And basically, a bank of mom and dad shut us down. And I do think, actually, this is a really important point. Location, this goes back to the theme maybe in my life, location matters. I sometimes think, had we been based in the Valley, had we had the right support system, that could have become a business. So location makes a difference.
0: Yeah, I think it's so true. And when you see all of that, it is a very deep truth, which is that I think there are so many kids who were all discovering the internet in the same way. And the truth of us, the majority of people, all of us, we had freedom and autonomy just to discover whatever we wanted. <laughs> and some of us got shut down and some of us got nurtured. Yeah. You know, for me, I think I had a similar dynamic where I was giving a computer and my parents had no idea why we spent so much time on it and it was just an interesting weird place where chat forums and i always remember like we treated our blogs like they were private things <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I'm typing my inner thoughts About ABC And I have a crush on this yeah. And I just wrote this diary And he just shared it online And you just thought like Five You were like, wow Five people read it And then yeah. suddenly you discovered That 50 people are reading it And you get yeah. weirded out Because too many people are reading yeah, it Yeah,
1: like 50 is a lot back then
0: It's a lot back then And then, you know None of us were like No, we should become an influencer And <laughs> have millions of followers yeah. Because there's nothing else To read on the internet Yeah Yeah, you know Alta Vista, Ask Jeeves GeoCities. GeoCities. Yeah, I remember being very proud of me coding my <laughs> HTML pages, with yeah. my marquee text, you know, bouncing from left to right. Chef's kiss, exactly. of uh, internet style. Yeah. Like
1: the internet back then was different. It was like weird. It was weird, different. It was interesting. I'm not saying the internet isn't interesting now. It's just a, a very different beast.
0: Yeah. So, and there you are to talk about location and being such an important place. And you start ping ponging around the place as well because you moved from London, where you got your undergrad, you got your master's in legit institutions. And then after that, you go off to the US, so and then eventually Southeast Asia. So, tell us, tell us through your geography.
1: Yeah, let me, let me start with London, what happened. I think it's really important to understand some of the motivations around why there was a need to kind of try out different locations. Going back to prior to starting a company, I was, at, so I was working at Goldman's. So I joined Goldman's in their technology division. We were building algo trading systems. So I was in an environment surrounded by basically people that are doing finance all the time. Finance, finance was the thing to do. And I liked it. So, I, But I did think to myself, maybe I should do more finance things instead of doing more building. And building is something I've done my entire life, coding, great, you know, making new things. But the people around me had an effect. So these externalities will change the things that you do and kind of things that you want to do. So I ended up going to a buy-side firm. And for a lot of people that work in finance, if you're in an investment bank, the dream is to kind of move to the other side, so from sell-side to buy-side. What I found was that even though my salary had gone up by many, many folds, and I was taking a lot more responsibility, grew that fund from 45 people to 200 people in a year and a half, I was deeply unhappy, just quite deeply unhappy. What I found was that in my spare time, I'd gone back to building. I was just like making things again. And around that time, my younger brother, who I previously, 10 years earlier, had basically done the Korean distribution platform, came to me. And he'd been working at a consultancy and he was working on a few projects with a few well-known enterprises like Sony Music. And they had basically had a technology problem. He just wanted my help. He's like, hey, let's brainstorm a few different ideas. And what had happened is that a lot of the things that he was talking about, a lot of the work that they were doing, just like basic like task management play around with Excel sheets and stuff. A lot of that could have been automated even with macros. So we were just bouncing around some of these ideas and saying, hey, look, a lot of the things that you're doing could probably be done with software. So we started thrashing out some of these ideas and he took that back, that proposal back and he actually pitched it. And it turned out that he they ended up winning that deal. So he, you know, it was great for his company. And we were like, wait, this could potentially be like this could be a real company, right? So what we what we both ended up doing is just quitting our jobs. We had we had zero funding, by the way, like zero funding, zero support. We just we just thought we'd do it. And I think that takes a certain type of personality. So I've always been quite optimistic. I'm not saying that's for everyone. When you're a very optimistic person, you tend to underweight risk and you overweight potential positive outcomes. And I think that's very important for an entrepreneur, especially when most things are non-obvious. So for us, we both kind of shared that trait. We we were very highly optimistic about how this could turn out. So we started building this piece of software and we basically had zero traction (laughs) at the time. Like no no one wanted to buy whatever we were building. So we tried out different things, we were pitching them, it turned out that no one really wanted to give us a shot. Until we started playing around with a certain piece of technology, which was geolocation. So iPhones had added geolocation to the phone and you could access it in the browser. And this was key because what that meant was digital assets could now be tied to a physical object. You could only, for example, access. So, and this is the thing that we had built, you could access music at a physical location. So imagine Spotify, but instead of being able to stream music anywhere, it would force you to go to a physical location. And it turned out that that was something that a lot of brands really liked. So Sony Music, some of the guys that want you know, to music. The reason why they liked it was because they could tie that into campaign promotions for new albums. So that that ended up being like our first kind of first customer we were getting towards market fit. And that allowed us to raise some, some money, just like a bit of angel money, and build out this product. And while we were building it out, it turned out that, the thing that we're building wasn't just applicable to like that one campaign they would run, but they want to run multiple campaigns. And word started spreading and we started to get interest from some of the guys, not just in London, but basically over in LA. And while all this was happening we, and we were building this out, we realized a few key things. Yes, we could make money from these deals, but the amount of time and effort going into them still required more technology investment. So we needed to raise money. That's the conclusion that we came to. That's the conclusion we came to. We started to do what most founders did. We started to fundraise for the first time. I remember distinctly remembering at the time I was deeply into Paul Graham's essays. Like that was like a Bible for me. I was like reading the different essays, thinking about how what's the best way to raise money. We tried, at the time we tried a lot of different things. We spoke to all the major funds there. And this was our first time speaking to funds. And what we found was when we were fundraising in L.A., it turned out that for every hour of work, because we'd always measure, basically our fundraising, all the key metrics, so how many people reached out to, how long it would take from intro to a meeting to a partner meeting to like a check. And we found that for every hour of work, we would get four times as much back, whether that was intros, whether that was meetings, whether that was like a check. That's just simply from moving from London to L.A., doing the exact same pitch, so there's, there's no difference. And I told you a lot about the difference in the ecosystem, maybe the, how mature the market was at the time. Yeah, so that was the in, initial move. Initial move. So a lot of it was motivated by raising more money to continue to run the company.
0: So how did that transition happen from the first company startup that you had all the way to where you are today in your second company, mm-hmm. tackling enterprise to automation?
1: Yeah, so we ended up basically doing
0: tons of partnerships. Like we worked with Activision,
1: Call of Duty. I think this was for Call of Duty Black Ops. 3 I mean it's one cool. of them it's like it's the fast and, and furious uh, franchise
0: yeah. is one yeah. of those yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: there's there some sub series but I think if I, remember I think it was quality black ops 3 or maybe black ops 2 some gamers screaming
0: into the headset right now like yeah they're like there, yeah.
1: well Mo doesn't know what he's talking about this, this podcast so is trash, wrong.
0: <laughs> yeah. trash. <laughs>
1: <It's> trash. <laughs> so yeah so that was part of it um we worked with Disney on, on some Marvel promotions. We learned a lot about that. We basically did a ton of partnerships with some of the largest companies in the world. So Unilever, Coachella, so Golden Voice, we went to Coachella, we ran a massive campaign there. It was a lot of fun. But what we found is that our original vision of, could we make the process of doing these partnerships more automated with software? We weren't really achieving it. What happened is, because we were making money as like a hybrid tech agency, because that's, that, that's, that's what was happening, we started to fall into the problem of almost like an innovative dilemma. We weren't even a big company, we weren't Intel here, but we were basically making money. And that model of running an agency can be profitable. It can make you money, but it can also divert you away from maybe what your core goal was initially. Our goal was, hey, let's build software, to make rather than just let's make like a nice kind of like side business that runs an agency or a hybrid tech agency, where we build technology that kind of fixed, that kind of worked with each partnership on a campaign by campaign basis. Yeah, it was fun. you got to try different technologies, but it was also very laborious. So for every new deal that we got, we had to hire new people. For every deal that we lost, we had to kind of maybe get rid of some people. It was basically the company scaled with headcount. So you could do more if you had more people and you could kind of do less if you had less people. That wasn't the direction that we wanted to take the company. Some of our investors, that was definitely the thing that they wanted to do. So so we, we decided that we wanted to continue building a pure track product. So we formed Metapair. So that's when we moved over to you know SF and we basically founded the new company. The idea behind Metapair was that we were not going to do a hybrid agency model. We'd already done that. We wanted to solve the problem that we'd been facing with the number of different partnerships we'd done. And those partnerships were successful. We'd done so many. We had been able to open an office in... <laughs> this is going to sound funny. but We opened, ended up opening an office in Egypt remotely. We had... An office again in London because we were basically taking so many deals. so we, we understood that it could be a it could be a, a nice business. And we'd met actually many kind of brokership type agencies in LA that did partnerships like that as well. So we knew it would work. But it wasn't like the, the problem they were trying to solve. It was very frustrating to run that business really challenging. And we thought that software could kind of basically fix that, which is kind of going back to our original hypothesis a few years earlier. So when we were drafting out the new company, we spoke to Actually, one of our investors who was at the time on the board of Unilever. So, Unilever is a massive company. He's, he's really well connected. He said, Hey, look, like assets is expensive. You guys should think about how you want to build out the company from, the, from, from early on. Jeremy, I'm not sure how much you know about this, but it's actually quite common now when you're raising or you know, building a company and you raise funding to have a, essentially a multi office strategy where you might have a, some headcount in one area and headcount elsewhere because you want to efficiently use capital which is one of the reasons. Capital efficiency is one reason to do like a location arbitrage. But there's a lot of other reasons that I can get into basically later on. So what ended up happening was, he was like, hey, look, you should think about Southeast Asia because the people, so Unilever has a, a, like an AI data center in Singapore. So a people data center. Think about Southeast Asia, that might be a great place. So what ended up happening was, I, we did like a small back, backpacking trip again, just like booked a ticket, no plan. The idea was that we'd be there for one week going through different countries. It was a month later we went to Japan, South Korea, so I know Japan's not in Southeast Asia, it's in East Asia, but Japan, South Korea, went to Thailand, went to Indonesia, went to Singapore, went to Malaysia. We basically traveled everywhere to kind of figure out what it would be like, actually, like if you could start a company there. What became immediately obvious was a language barrier. So both me and my co-founders speak English. That's our primary language. And if you're going to start a company, you need to be able to communicate. This doesn't sound very obvious, but you need to be able to communicate very clearly to the people in your team. They need to know what you're building. And not just what you're building, but what the mission is. It's just, why are you even part of this company? And for us, that meant there was a certain bar that we need to have for the English language because me and my co-founder, we were just you know, we, didn't know, we didn't know any more languages. And if you're doing that, if you're going to build a company that where English is the primary language, there's basically, people are going to have different opinions about this. I know because I've spoken to so many founders. But the option is like Malaysia and Singapore. Singapore primarily, and then Malaysia are the two countries that you can go ahead and build in. I'm sure you can obviously do it in Vietnam and Thailand, but I think it's a bit hard when it comes to hiring, especially if, you, uh, if you're not from there, if you're foreign. So we were playing around with that idea. We thought we were going to do Singapore. And what had happened by, uh, you know, when we were doing this trip, we came across uh, a quasi-government organization at the time, MDEC. So this is like an organization that their, their goal is to build a Malaysian digital economy. And they said, hey, look, why don't you give us like a, a meeting and we'll give you a pitch? And we ended up going to one of their meetings. And they basically rolled out the red carpet. They were like, hey, look, we're very, very, very friendly when it comes to getting foreign companies here that could help digitize the country, that could bring in new skills, that could allow us to create jobs in, in industries that we're really interested in developing. So like digital industries, technology, AI, that kind of stuff. And not only would they help, I think a key reason was there was also the, the a few traits about that program. One of the programs included unlimited visas. So if you wanted to bring someone from SF in for, let's say, three months... It's very, very easy. If you wanted to like have a founder come in, it's very easy. Another part of the program was that help you set up the company. So I'm a big believer in when you're running a startup, you want to focus as much as you can on product and customers. And anything that's admin related, even though it's really important, should basically be delegated if possible. And they they set, basically they, they were offering to set that up. So we ended up, yeah, we ended up coming to Malaysia and two programmers had no idea I was going to be in Malaysia until that
0: meeting. Wow! Now that you've gotten a bunch of different transitions from a first startup to a second startup, from the U.S. and London to Southeast Asia, I guess I'll go into the most direct one, which is: What would you say are the biggest differences in the entrepreneurial ecosystem between London, the U.S., and Malaysia?
1: Yeah, actually, um, I want to first answer that question. That's Fantastic question. I want to start the question with a quote from Mark Zuckerberg. And now I know he's not the only person that has said this, but he did say that opportunity is not evenly distributed, but skill and passion is. So there's many people in the world that have a lot of passion, a lot of drive, but they don't always have the opportunity. Kind of harkening back to the original story about me and my brother building the, the Korean distribution bank, had we been in a different location, our life could be very different. And the reason I harken back to that is because I mentioned one of the reasons to maybe open an office in somewhere like Southeast Asia in certain places because, you know, capital arbitrage. You want, you want to spend less money. CapEx is lower. But actually, what you'll find is that if you can build the right networks, you don't have to compromise on talent or skill. A lot of people seem to think that there's a trade-off. And whenever I speak to investors, a lot of them mention that. And I just say, wait, hold on a second. Hiring can be a problem, but if you build up a good enough network, then there's good people everywhere. And especially as the world becomes more remote, it's worth just highlighting that before answering that's the question. The difference between London let's say KL, in London, I found there to be a lot of very intelligent people. And at the time that we were building our company, you have to understand this was years ago, the London technology ecosystem was not as developed as it is now. So what that meant was most of the talent, most of the most interesting, most intelligent and most hardworking people would end up going to one or two industries, which was either consulting or, or finance. That's a com- very common story. You go to a, a top-tier school and you end up going to... I mean, I did the same, right? So uh, hiring good people was quite challenging. There weren't that many unicorn stories yet. And if you were, you'd have to be in fintech. Like fintech was is, is, is really is, it was really the thing. You know, entrepreneur First, I think, didn't exist at the time. It had just started. Entrepreneur First now is, is a beast. So what we found was that to hire people, a lot of people weren't bought into the notion of, like, join a company, see a scale, have some skin in the game. That, 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 from a hiring perspective, was a bit more challenging. And from a fundraising perspective, so I'll, I'll slice it into a few different uh, ways of like assessing it. So hiring was a bit more challenging because of that. You'd have to find people that are maybe more, more of a hacker. So actually, our first few hires in London, one of them was a French. <laughs> this, this is funny. He was, a, he was like a 19-year-old French hacker. One of the first people that introduced me to actually blockchain and Bitcoin. So at the time, <laughs> Ethereum hadn't even launched yet. And, you know, we, we, he would come to the office. We would build the source code together. Check this out. This is before Ethereum launched. And I remember when, actually, because of him, I got into Ethereum because I, I, I bought it, I think on launch, day, was it was February the 12th. I can't remember the exact date, but it was like $4. It was, it was super cheap. Ethereum was super cheap. So we had these random hackers that joined us because we just couldn't get normal people. Well, I say normal people, people that had gone through, like, the typical education system, which I thought, given my background, that's who you should hire. What we found is that you have to, you have to be a bit creative around that. And then from the fundraising perspective, what we found was that it was just most of the investors were. So there's a few things that you have to understand, but specifically about the UK ecosystem, very specific. They have certain programs that encourage money to go into like young tech companies. Those programs designed in such a way that if the company fails within, let's say, three years, you get all your money back. Now, that sounds like a great thing from an investor's perspective. But now there's an issue where if the company lasts, post the three years, but they still haven't done that hockey stick growth, there ends up being divergent interest between the investors and the founders. Because the investors might be thinking, well, it's better if this company dies because then I get basically all those tax credits back. And the founders are like, wait, we want to keep them going. Now, that's one thing. That just highlights maybe some of the kind of nuances of of the UK ecosystem when it comes to early stage funding. Another thing we found was that most of the investors hadn't had really big exits. They hadn't seen, for example, if you're in the value, you'd constantly see new companies being built, you have a lot of faith in taking risk. And the mindset at the time was more about being risk-averse than like risk-taking. So instead of thinking about opportunity as the key driver of whether or not you should invest in companies, more like, hey, what are the key risk factors? Okay, I think I'm out. So that's one thing about London. In comparison to when we were in the States, what we found was that, first of all, if fundraising is a marketplace, then there's just a lot more. People that have money, they have a lot more capital. So you could have a lot more meetings, one. Two, there was definitely more of an appetite of, around opportunity, like what could this become? And, and that's primarily because the ecosystem is a bit more developed. I feel like other ecosystems around the world will definitely get there if they're not there already. But once you see a couple of uh, exits, once you start seeing your, your colleagues or your friends or your, your nephews or your nieces get great equity packages that turn to something real, then you become a lot more accepting of the idea of like, hey, let, you know, uh, we should find, find this from a which basically invest in in young companies. From a hiring perspective, what we found was actually, even though we could potentially get more interviews, it was a lot more competitive, again, primarily because if you're doing a tech company in in the Valley, there's, there's millions of other tech companies. So you really need to get people that are mission aligned. If you're getting people that are mission aligned, this is very important actually. And let's say you're hiring a young engineer. So most young people don't have that much work experience. So they're most likely going to relate to things that are BTC focused. Like if you're doing like an Uber or Grab, they can understand it. They can relate to it. They they could even buy into the mission. But if you're doing something that requires like enterprise companies, it sounds a bit boring, you know, like an enterprise company, even that word doesn't sound so great. It becomes a bit more challenging. That's one. First of all, salary is a lot more higher. We found the challenge around competition was high. But what we did find was that there was more. There was like genuinely a lot more people that are uh, accepting of it, a lot more people that are willing to take equity instead of taking financial compensation like a salary. That was less of the case in London. Like in, in, in the US, that was, it was equity compensations were far more popular. And what we also found was that exec- it was easy to get advisors and executives on board. Like a lot of people were willing to like, come on your advisory board, maybe you know, for some kind of equity deal. So yes, yeah, so that, that was definitely SF. I think that, that was still quite formative. It taught us a lot about how to raise money, how to run a company. You could learn from other entrepreneurs as well because it's so, the, the, the market is so deep uh, and things could move a lot faster because of that. Now, like, now, comparing all those three to Southeast Asia, I would say I found KL to be a bit more like London, but maybe even a, a bit more conservative around what's it like, to work at a company and should you take the equity package? For example, if you're hiring in KL, if you're hiring in KL, you're more likely to get a great candidate if you increase their base salary as opposed to giving them equity. And the reason why is because while there have been some exits in Southeast Asia and there's some great ones, you know, like Grab is great. A lot of SPACs are happening now. Going back over the last year and a half, that wasn't really the case. I don't think many people have been in the company where they've exited and had a significant, like their life has changed. They haven't seen that as much. A perfect example, like when Microsoft IPO'd, so when Max IPO'd, that's 1,200 people became millionaires. All those people then reinvested back into the ecosystem, or they then started their own venture funds. And Max is just one of many, many companies that have basically become unicorns and say so the, the ecosystem is a lot more developed. That is hasn't quite happened here, I don't think, in my opinion. I know, Jeremy, you might be looking at me like, Mo, you know, that's not true, or I don't know your opinion on this, I'd love to talk to you about it. But because of those things haven't happened, quite happened yet, you end up having to maybe pay up a bit more as opposed to, uh, and people tend to be more financially inclined as opposed to hey, vision inclined around how they should be compensated. But another thing that I found was really interesting and one reason why you should consider a place like Southeast Asia is because you can pay someone very well here. You can pay them two to three times what you normally pay them in other regions and they'll be happy. They could live like kings and they can have a great life. Like you're generally giving them a good life at the same time they get to work in a company where they can build new and really cool things. Doing that same like doing that in, for example, like SF, is really difficult. Like paying above the market is really hard. To give you a few ballpark numbers for people that listen that don't know, one of our first hires was 120,000 base salary. And that was with, I think, two months experience at university. So that, that can be, that can, that's from like a financial perspective. Then in terms of the talent, like a skill set, the things that you to keep Bear in mind, London. London actually has really good talent. They have great institutions there. So some of the some of the best research So that comes out of artificial intelligence and AI come from some of the London institutions. So you've got good access to talent there from uh, if you're, if you're do like deep tech. So one of the reasons why Entrepreneur first started in London, just great talent there. Obviously talent's great in, in SF as well. A lot of questions I get from founders that want to start maybe a company in, in, in let's say a place like KL is, what about talent? Like, are you going to be compromising on talent? I would say... That could happen, but if you spend enough time, build the right networks, you can get around that talent problem. One of the best engineers I've met globally, by the way, one of the best, hands down, one of the best AI engineers I met was a 17 year old kid in LA. I met him in LA. He's from EPO. So when I first met him, I remember saying, Hey, look, so like, where are you from? And he said, I'm from EPO. And I was like, like, this can sound really ignorant. I was like, what's that? <laughs> it's obviously a place. I didn't, I didn't even know what that was. It's like, oh, it's a place in Malaysia. And I was like, oh, Malaysia. You know, I have a few friends. Is that like near KL? And I, at that point, that really made me realize, well, again, opportunity may not be evenly distributed, but passion. If someone really cares about something, you can hook into the right communities, then talent is. So we've been fortunate that being part of a few different networks here, we've been able to kind of hack around the, that, that talent gap. So we've been able to get a few great engineers that have stayed with us Yeah. Any questions about that, Jeremy? I know I I kind of went to a lot of different topics.
0: Yeah. Well, turning to the last chapter here, could you tell us about a time when you have been brave?
1: Yeah. Going back to that time when I was at the fund, when you start a company, when you start one out of university and you don't have much to lose, uh, I think that's, that's a challenging proposition. You're taking a step in an area you don't know. There's a lot of ambiguity. I think it's much harder when you already have a social network that incentivizes you to continue doing the things that you do, when you have parents that may rely on you for capital, and when you have a career path that's doing very well. So when I was at the fund, this post Goldman, it was doing really well. Like the company was growing. I know KPIs around headcount aren't the best, but it went from 45 people to 200. The fund size went from 7 billion to 65 billion AUM, right? It was growing really fast. There's a lot of opportunities. And at the time, I was really contemplating, even though I was... I was in, I was really contemplating, is it the right move? Should I kind of like leave everything I'm doing? If I stayed here, my path would be set. I already knew what was going to happen over the next few years. I could see it. Like, you know, I'd go into a managerial position. Then for my personal life, eventually meet maybe a nice lady, get married, have kids, stay in London, be in a fund, right? That's growing really fast. And then that would give a lot of different opportunities. Parents would be very happy. But I wasn't. And ultimately, you need to look inside what drives you, what makes you the person that you want to be. And I found that the things I did on the weekends, the things I did in the evenings were the things that made me happy. And what was I doing there? I was like building products. I was, I was reading Paul Graham's essays. You know, I was reading Peter Thiel's Zero to One. Like that's the thing that I was reading up at night. That's the thing that I really wanted to do. I know a lot of people, when they talk about the entrepreneurial journey. It sounds like it's so obvious in hindsight. But for me, making that decision is really tough. Because I had grown up in a family where I didn't have a lot of means. So money was like a big reason why I went to finance in the first place. And I had to basically discard money for what I knew I really wanted to do, which was build things with
0: other people. Amazing. What advice would you give for founders to build things with other people? Because it's so scary, right? There you are in the finance sector, you have a nice salary, you have a stable career and a stable life. How do you switch from managing capital to building things with other people?
1: First of all, if you want to be a founder, I want to say starting a company isn't for everyone. I know this might be counterintuitive. where everyone's kind of like, wants to be independent. Definitely don't start a company because you think you want to start a company. Like there needs to be something that you're kind of really solving. But if you are, if you are going to make that switch, piece of advice. One, definitely, 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 think about bringing someone else on board. Being a solo founder It's really, really hard. Being a founder is hard. Being a solo founder is much, much harder. There's a reason why, if you apply to YC, even though they take solo founders, they definitely recommend you find a co-founder as soon as possible. So someone to share the burden, someone to share the struggles and build something together, someone that complements you. So find a co-founder. If you already know what you want to solve. The next thing I would say is you want to get to a place where you can kind of be as self-sufficient as possible. So try and be in a place, both with you and a co-founder, where you can actually kind of solve the initial version of that problem. Definitely be able to do that because that's going to allow you to then really, when you go out to fundraising, make something you can, you can really leverage that and get that the, the highest valuation or, or, or as much money as you can. It'll also really allow you to understand the problem because when you start a company, you have a lot of different theses. You have a lot of different hypotheses that need to be tested. You actually don't know a lot. People think they do, but you actually don't know until you go out into the market. And you're able to test each one of those as much as you can with as little resources as possible. So to get to a place where you can kind of do that don't raise money if you don't have to. <laughs> Never raise money if you don't have to. It's the, I don't think I've come across any founder that says they love fundraising. Uh, so that's another, another tip. Don't do that if you don't have to. Uh, but I understand that uh, a lot of people want to because that's what's been idolized, especially when TechCrunch, you hear about all these different companies raising a lot of different money. You also get a lot of admiration from your fellow you know, startup, startup founders. And then the next thing is, if you're building a company or if you're thinking about building a company and you're not quite sure yet, join a startup. One of the things I would say to my younger self, if I could go back, between joining a large business with a great reputation, that's good for your career, I would say, join a fast-growing company as you can. You will learn so much more in such a short period of time. On top of that, you'll get real insight into what it's actually like. The things that you read on the internet only cover part of a startup's journey. Once you're inside a company, you actually see how things are run. Most startups are, can I swear on this podcast, it's basically a shit joke. Most startups are just figuring things out. And you don't really understand that until you've gone through that process. So join the company as you can. And if you already know what you want to build, then find a co-founder and start, start, start building it.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mo, for coming on the show. I want to paraphrase the three big teams that came out of this. The first was your amazing personal journey from uh, hacking the hacks file to for Age of Empires to your... Netflix slash Korean. unlimited <laughs> Korean manga <laughs> website directory. And now I'm wondering how big that bill was and uh, getting it on to becoming someone in the finance sector to eventually building out your first company and then building out your second company from there as well. Just an amazing personal journey. I think you did a great job. This showing who you were and how you became the person you are today. The second thing I really enjoyed, of course, was that discussion between the comparison of different ecosystems, really in London, LA, San Francisco, and uh, Malaysia, and really comparing and looking at how a lot of what your observations are for the Southeast Asia ecosystem really applies to not just Malaysia, but also for Indonesia, Vietnam, Singapore as well. And I think there's this interesting parallel where you drew that and just said, At one level, it's about the ecosystem, but at the other level, like you said, passion and skill is evenly distributed. And I think that's a great reminder because you shared about the episodes where you spotted great talent in Southeast Asia that had to move to America or had to be discovered in different ways. And then thirdly, thank you so much for that last drop of wisdom here around advice to future founders about how to really be thoughtful and intentional about setting up a, a business of their own and that it's okay to take intermediary steps along the way as well.
1: Exactly, yeah. You put it so eloquently, Jeremy. I'm really jealous of your ability to take information and just
0: like summarize it. Yeah, i was just taking notes right here <laughs> while you're talking, so <laughs> yeah. awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mo, for coming on the show.
1: Yeah, thank you, Jeremy, for having me and hopefully I'll be speaking to you soon.
0: Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyowell.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave.